Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail. It's the final word story time. 156. I'm Adam Collins. I'm in London. He's Jeff Lemon. He's in, I I, I would imagine, Durham, Charlotte. Hello, Jeff. Durham, Charlotte, you are correct. Uh, you've been paying attention. I also don't really know where I am a lot of the time because it's hard to remember. But here we are. Um, it's been a, a very long, weird drive up the uh, up a mountain. I've just about got over the car sickness in time to record this show. So you were in uh, Delhi a couple of days ago. So you got you drove up from Delhi to I was Durham, in Delhi Charlotte this morning. So you drove from Delhi to Durham, Charlotte. That's a twelve-hour drive or something. You did that via car? No, we flew into wherever the place is that's kind of closer, and then and then um, what an hour or ninety minutes or whatever it was in the car to get up from there. But yeah, we're very high up. We're we're up in the pine forest. It's very beautiful out the window. Um, so we've got the game early tomorrow, and then looking forward to having a wander around since we have an entire day off. I've still got to make the daily show, of course, but, you know, an, an actual, a theoretical day off. Yeah, yeah, understood. I hear you. I've got a theoretical day off right now, but I'm making story time. Here we are. Uh, that's such is the, the, the commitment we've made through the World Cup. Can't stop, won't stop and all the rest of it. Hey, um, before we get into some new numbers and some great stories this week, Andy Bull from The Guardian has written in to ask whether we've ever done the story of Bob Chris, but he sent me through a piece that he wrote about Bob for the spin, the, the, the Guardian's cricketing newsletter, a decade ago. I think mm. they must have had longer word limits back then, Jeff. Whenever I write the spin, it's like you've got a thousand words, you know, maybe 1,200 if, you, if you're willing to push it out a little bit, but this was more like two and a half thousand words. Bloody hell, we should do a story time bit on Bob Crisp. 
but I'm gonna, uh, I'm not gonna lean into the temptation of doing that just quickly and bespoke off the top. Instead, I want it to be sent through as a nerd pledge. I want us to be given the chance to talk about Bob Crisp and more to the point, I think Andy, we, I'd like to get him on to do it for us because um, he's already done the research. And I, I share his view that it's an extraordinary story, a South African test cricketer from just before World War II. So um, yeah, let's get a, a nerd pledge in on Bob Crisp and um, hopefully we can get Andy Bull from The Guardian to join us for that. All right. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm sure if we sift through our list of numbers, we could find a way <laughs> to make a story about Bob Crisp, but possibly nobody has sent it through yet. Uh, but yeah, why not? Why not expand the the Storytime Cinematic Universe? And the other uh, thing I wanted to uh, just refer to before we get into it is uh, a message from Tom Millia, so Taliman on our uh, on our uh, Discord channel. So last week I told the story of Frank Druce, who made the double century for Cambridge and found himself on an Ashes trip in eighteen ninety seven ninety eight, I think it is. And on the way through to that. Druce, that double ton he made for Cambridge, was against, a, I guess, a glorified wandering team uh, captained by Frank Mitchell, uh, who was um, also of Cambridge University, but a few years earlier. And Tom tells me that the ACS, who we celebrated last week for reaching their 50th birthday, actually did a book on Frank Mitchell. It's titled Imperial Cricketer. And I feel like we've been sort of sourcing a book on Titch Freeman for you. I, I want to get the book on Frank Mitchell, given it's out there somewhere. There's a bit in the blurb uh, that talks about he has notoriety for having uh, directed his bowlers to send wides and no balls down in a varsity game to make sure that Cambridge wouldn't have to enforce a follow-on, which was customary at the time. I actually feel like we've referred to that before when um, when we had Daniel on the show a, a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, much as it is with Crisp, maybe we'll wait for a, an appropriate number that lines up with uh, Frank Mitchell and will be helped along uh, by that book. So thanks to Tom for bringing it to my attention during the week. All right, expanding our libraries as well. Um, it, it's it's always tricky when we're travelling because you don't want to pick up books to carry with you because they're so heavy, um, and mm. that's one of the things that, about the technology. But we need a kind of yeah, we need a centralised final word library. We need to add a library wing to your um, your house so that we can have a place that we're allowed to keep all of our cricket books where we, we won't get in trouble for filling up the rest of the house. Maybe that's something to, we'll try to expand our patron base so we can build the final word cricket library. It won't surprise you to learn, <laughs> Jeff. It won't surprise you to learn, Jeff. I've been busy on this front recently on the memorabilia front, but um, I might leave that discussion to another day. It might, just might uh, come up in a, another final word discussion that's dropping soon. Anyway, right. So Jeff, uh, right. we're as ever in a World Cup, a little bit limited on time, so we should get more or less straight into it. What are we doing here? We're doing a little bit of Nerd Pledge! Mountains version Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with the lovely people who fund this program and they do that by sending in contributions of a very specific number, whatever the number is they want to choose because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it means. Or sometimes, if they're particularly nice, like John O'Halen usually is, he tells us what it means. $19.00. And 92 cents in Australian currency. So 1992. And he says, remove the decimal and you have the first half to what was, in my opinion, the most amazing international summer in Australia. And you, you can tell the backlog of numbers we have because he, he made this pledge on the eve of the 2022-23 season mm. as a 30th anniversary gift to myself, he says, as the summer in question was one that had an eight-year-old me fall completely in love with the game. Looking forward to hearing the final words reflection on the wonderful Test Series and enjoyable World Series that summer. Now, this, I have to make a point here, Adam, because people may not believe this, um, but this is true. 
that we don't fiddle with the order. This is the order that things come in. Mm. And this is legitimately the order uh, that this arrived after Phoebe Halen and Jono welcomed their baby boy during the week, which is something that everybody on our online community has been kept up to date with. Uh, so Patrick Darcy has been welcomed into the world and we're, we're very glad to have another final word baby to add to our collection, which is pretty extensive by now. There are, there are quite a few final word babies out there. So, but also, also it just happened to coincide with the fact that last weekend on Storytime, I told the story of Titch Freeman and the fact that he took 304, 302 wickets in a season in 1928 and that that included three test matches against the West Indies. So when I got the update from Jono that Patrick had arrived, he said Patrick was born at 5.39pm. And so, of course, I immediately replied, 539 is the analysis that Titch Freeman took in the second innings against the West Indies at the Manchester Test of 1928 with his 5.39 to win the match. And so we, we have agreed that, at least in the initial exchanges, because they didn't have a name first up, hadn't decided, Patrick is sporting the nickname Titch, which is pretty appropriate for a, a tiny person who's just joined this carousel. It's perfect. I, I, I corresponded with uh, with Jono as well, uh, and, he, and he said to me the name was TBA, and I said, well, in that case, it should be TBA May, Tim May, call him Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and the fact that his nerd pledge has come up about the 92-93 summer, which includes a famous spell from Tim May at Adelaide, which I'm sure, Jeff, you're about to detail in a sec. That all would have come together nicely. The other bit of serendipity here is that John O'Halen historically has been our Jody Hicks correspondent. And during the week, on the weekend, it would have been, I guess, just before the birth, I reckon. Either way, we were inundated with messages uh, showing us the clip where Jody Hicks won the game for GWS last week, her second goal, having played a whole stack of games for them, but the former WBBL player who we featured prominently on the final word at different points for having had more TFCs than anyone possibly could have in professional cricket, uh, where she didn't bat, didn't bowl, didn't field, etc. did make a contribution for the Orange last week and uh, got them up over the line on the same weekend that Patrick was born and the, the same weekend where we started dealing with this great number in 1992. Yes, 1992. So, of course, it is a classic five-test series, West Indies visiting Australia after that decade through the 80s where they beat up Australian teams mercilessly time and time again. The series that follows, so this one finishes up 2-1 with two draws and the Windies win the fifth and deciding test. Um, the following series in 96-97 is, is 3-2, which looks better on paper, but it's concluded by the time the fourth test is played. So Australia win at 3-1 and then um, the Windies get a consolation win in the fifth match. And then the one after that is the 5-0 debacle, the whitewash um, in 2000, 2001. And, and basically that's the, the final bing, death knell for super competitive West Indies cricket. And um, the series gets shorter thereafter and, and things get worse very, very quickly. So that kind of glory days period um, this mm. this particular series 92 93 this is this is right up there and and every match in this series is great in its own way um, even you know the first test is the draw australia trail by 78 on the first innings in some strife and then put on 
308. With David Boone making a ton, Kirtley taking a five for, and the Windies hang on right at the end, eight wickets down. They've got 133 on the board. That scorecard's extraordinary. Three ducks, two scores of one, one score of four. All of the batting in that last innings is done by Richie Richardson, who makes mm. 66, and Carl Hooper, who makes 32. Both of them batting very, very slowly, and nobody else makes a run, and they're eight down. It's extraordinary. I don't want to steal your thunder too much here, Jeff, because I'm going to come in over the top and talk about the World Series Cup of, of that summer in a bit. But that... Uh, what I do remember of that test, because I agree with Jono, that, that that summer is when I go from, in 91-92, I was in grade one going into grade two. And of course, I was obsessed with what was going on. But, you know, your brain grows so much in one year. I had a much better feel for it in 92-93. And, you know, Dino being left out of that first test at Brisbane, we spoke about that when Dino passed away a few years ago, was a huge deal. Damien Martin making his debut. And so it was when David Boone dug in and I think it was 111 Booney made. Yeah, I remember yep. he brought up his 4,000th test run in that innings. Don't ask me why, but I remember it came up on the screen, David Boone, 4,000 test runs after Keith Arthur made a brilliant century to give the Windies a pretty healthy lead. So like pretty much every test in this series, I can signpost by where I was. And I know Booney's 100 was on a Sunday. So I was watching at my nan and granddad's house um, in front of the telly, probably like one foot away from the television, eating a Sunday roast mm. and being told to get out of the way of the TV and, and so on. But, um, you know, th- th- this was that summer for me as well. So I, I, I kind of have that, um, all these reference points that are in my brain as, as you'll detail mm. the test match scores and so on. The the second test in Melbourne, you hear a lot about certain parts of this test, but you don't hear about another bit, which I'll come to in a moment. So Australia go big, make 395. They're, they're in some trouble at one point. What are they, 115 for four or thereabouts? David Williams, this is the bit mm. I hadn't heard much about before, the wicketkeeper at the time, drops Alan Border, misses a stumping off Mark Waugh, both of whom go on to make hundreds, 112 and 110. Before the end of day two, Merv Hughes comes out and knocks off the top three. And then it's mostly Craig McDermott the next day. And, uh, you know, Shane Warne takes one wicket in that innings, which is Curtly Ambrose, after bowling plenty of overs, doesn't look like he's in the game. Williams, after these two misses, which have allowed Australia to put on this big score, makes a first ball duck as the Windies are all out for 233. And then in the West Indies' subsequent innings, he makes a duck off 21 balls. It's got to be one of the worst matches ever for a wicketkeeper, I reckon. And David Williams, I didn't know much about. I kept thinking, isn't that, wasn't it the name of the actor who played Mr X in the X-Files? Wasn't that David Williams? Or oh, was gosh. That, or was it, um, there's, there's Michael K. Williams who, who, who plays Omar Little in The mm, Wire. Mm. Um, but I have a feeling it might have been David Williams. I didn't look that up. For Mr. X, as in the one who has to replace Deep Throat after they mm. knock him off at the end of season one in a dramatic season one finale, the assassination on the bridge. Um, apologies if that's a spoiler. You've had 30 years to watch The X-Files, sort your life out. But, yeah, I mean, Dave, did, were you familiar with, with David Williams? Because he gets dropped after this and then he comes back five years later and he plays eight more test matches, goes on a tour to Pakistan, plays in a tour when England visit. He makes another four ducks in his following 13 innings, top score of 68. Safe to say things didn't go extraordinarily well, at least with the bat for David Williams as a keeper at international level. I think the main thing was that after the era where Jeff Dujon was such an important part of the Windies team, they did struggle to find a permanent replacement for quite a number of years. So, I mean, Junior Murray was in and around the side in the mid-90s. They had... Courtney Brown as well, who dropped Steve Waugh and all the rest. But, yeah, they, they never quite settled. They were chopping and changing in that position. From that test, 
the noteworthy thing there for Mark Waugh especially. I mean, he'd made runs for Australia, but he found a way to make it work against the Windies. There was a there was a suggestion in that part of his career that he was vulnerable against the short ball. And that was actually enhanced by this innings because what Waugh was doing, which is quite common now, but back then wasn't, he was backing away and playing the ball over the top of the cordon with great regularity. So back then the convention was you get inside the line and you duck or you pull or you hook, but Waugh was doing it the other way. And meanwhile, Border playing one of his great innings, having missed out on test centuries for so many years against the Windies, having made you know, gl- mm. glut of runs, but re- rarely making centuries in the the back of the 80s or middle to the end of the 80s. He, he was quite yep. productive through this period and made a whole bunch of centuries at home. And um, this was an important one to set it up, of course, before, you know, Shane Warne does what, what Shane Warne does after Phil Simmons does what Phil Simmons does in the chase. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's Border's first home 100 for five years at that point because mm. he had that, that long break before Faisal Abad but then hadn't made one at home and stuck it up everybody at the press conference and told them to <laughs> go fuck themselves basically. Yeah, so Phil Simmons 110 and Richie Rich 52 as they try to keep things together in the chase. Nobody else passes 16 in that final innings um, and then it's, you know, of course it's the famous Shane Warne 7 for 52 after that long bowl for, for one tail ender in the first innings, mops them up. And you know, we've talked about that extensively with the Warren shows that we've done in the past about that being the, the first real big um, demonstration of, of the fireworks that he can produce. I was sick on the sofa that afternoon when Warney was running through the windies. I was kind of um, fading in and out of uh, in and out of sleep. My parents, I think I've told you before, Jeff, that my dad rigged up an enormous aerial on top of our house in order to pick up Win and Prime because we were close enough to Gippsland that if you had a huge aerial, you could get the rural television. And so we were watching it live rather than on delay because of you know that where you know live against the gate wasn't a thing then, and you'd only get the final yeah. session from. Me memory, most of the damage was done between lunch and tea on what became the final day. So yeah, we did have it on live, but I was, I had a running a huge fever and I remember watching it sort of a second time when they got to when Channel 9 picked up the coverage at tea, the game was over and they played it again as live. So I got to watch it a, a second time properly having um, sort of realised that Warney had done this miraculous thing, the Richie Richardson flipper and so on. Yep, yep, all of that. So that's Melbourne, that's Australia winning there after the first draw. Sydney's another draw um, which would be pretty unnotable if not for Brian Lara, 277. You know, you talk about Warren announcing himself on the big stage. That's Lara doing it for West Indies, you know, such a young player. We've, we've talked about that innings before specifically. It's, what is it, what was it, his fifth test match, something like that. He's, he's very early in his career. He's a, he's a young man. Australia have made 503, batting first. Steve Waugh's made 100. The Windies respond with 606. The bit that I like is that they add a further 125 after Lara gets out. So Jimmy Adams is out there, 77 not out, and bats with the tail, even after Lara does his miraculous thing and, and just kills the game with that innings but also you know it's safe to say for for certainly once he passes 200 a lot of the talk is like does he get does he catch sobers today well he doesn't catch sobers that day he has to wait another year and a half whatever it is before he finally catches Gary with the 365 that was at that point still the highest test score Um, but he looked a, a red hot chance before getting run out for 277. Yeah, and, and the um, the rained out day, I think, played a role in all of that, Jeff, if I recall correctly. It was that they, they batted on. Rained out day in Sydney. <laughs> rained out day in a test well, match. Well, there was one the previous year as well when India were there. Warney's debut, there was an entire day where there wasn't a ball bowled. And I'm pretty sure with Dallara 277, that, that part of the reason why they, they kept going 
maybe for an extra session or something like that was because they they realised it was eventually going to end up a draw. Yep. So it does end up a draw. They add a further Australia, 125 without loss. Uh, no, sorry, 117 without loss in the third innings before they run out of time. So that's 1,226 runs for 19 wickets. Safe to say um, it was there was not a lot of menace in that particular surface. And then Adelaide, the famous, famous, famous Adelaide, the most famous of this series. The Windies who need to win the last two matches to win the series, winning this one by one run, Australia with the game in their hands after bowling out West Indies for 146 in the third innings. Uh, as you mentioned, that is Tim May working 5-2-9. Uh, what a way to make a living. Takes 5-9, for nine, extraordinary, and then makes 42 not out with the bat, batting with poor old Craig McDermott, 18 from 57 balls. Batted for 88 minutes, the number 11, before being given out the glove, helmet, whatever it was, um, through to the wicketkeeper. And, yeah, that's the match. Remember... Um, Willie McInnes on our interview with him talking about listening to that match on the radio and driving around and, and getting home and having one of those moments with his partner at the time, sort of realising the significance of the event, you know, it being something that every it felt like everyone in Australia was paying attention to through that last partnership. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I got back, from, that happened, um, most of that partnership happened after we would have gotten home from school, Jeff, because I remember getting back and it was, you know, that they might have been, on four or five apiece. And it was, yeah, they're meant to lose from there, but um, they get ever so close and being at, you know, like after school care or something like that and again, being glued to the television. And and so it proved the next week too, although most of the damage at Perth was done on that Saturday afternoon when Kirtley takes a seven for one and the rest of the test matches are debacle. Yeah, seven for 25 is the innings analysis. Seven for one is the spell for Kirtley, who also took four for 46 to win the Adelaide test. So that's the, you know, the, the real triumph moment for him. They stuff Australia by an innings in that last match and you know it, it's a phenomenal comeback from being 1-0 down after three to be able to knock off the entire thing and claim that series you talk about last gasp you know the one run in Adelaide and then and then storming home in Perth on a I mean how many times I've watched that seven for one spell maybe more than more than almost anything, I suppose, uh, any any individual clip because it's just so outrageous. Yeah, and then Ian Bishop in the in the final innings going through them a, a second time all over inside three days and so dispiriting seeing um, it was Kirtley Ambrose driving around the outfield of Perth at, at the side of the car, having won that as well for International Player of the Year. And I, you know, having gone back and done the World Series part of this for Jono, I understand better the flow. So as a kid, I'm just, you know, mm. I just viewed it through the prism of, well, Australia should win this series because they've won at Melbourne, you know, a draw at Brisbane, but they got the better of that, the better of the second half at least. And, you know, shame on doing what he was and notwithstanding the performance from Lara at Sydney, it felt like it was Australia's series to win. But now having gone through the one days, I understand a little bit more how this all sequenced. So, you know, a right. few, few things to get into here. This is the first tri-series with the lightning bolt uniform. You might have seen me wearing that jacket a fair bit in the last couple of months since I got it before my wedding. So this is a, a real sort of high point of Australian one-day cricket and the, and the World Series before it kind of plateaus perhaps towards the end of the, the decade. Pakistan, the third side in it. And Pakistan won the World Cup at the MCG March 92. So Pakistan, Pakistan win the World Cup, win the World Cup. Six months after, Sorry. not even six months after, you know, uh, being there for that. Well, mm. I guess it would have been about half a year. Um, they returned to be there with Australia and, and the Windies. And, you know, Dino's back in that one-day side, so that subplot continues. It became a bit of a psychodrama by the end across those two summers. But, you know, Dino's there. And 
Australia start, well, I went through, I'm not going to go through every game, but a few that stood out to me. The genius rain-reduced Mark Taylor game. This is where it's a 30-over game, heaps of rain in Sydney. Again, Australia make nine for 101 in 30 overs, which, you know, in context is not a bad performance at the time because, you know, 101 runs in 30 overs then wasn't wasn't a bad clip in the pre-T20 era. And then the Windies in the drizzle. I don't know. I can't remember why Mark Taylor was captaining Australia. I guess AB must have been injured. But they refused to come off. When the rain was coming down, the umpires and Taylor were working to keep the game going. So much time had been lost to rain. And the bowlers go to work. It's Whitney at the start then. Paul Rifle, the War Brothers. I remember Steve War getting a wicket with his slow ball. I reckon it was to get Keith Arthurton, who'd made the 100 in Brisbane a couple of weeks earlier. So the first slab of these World Series games are played after the Brisbane Test. Between Brisbane in, let's call it, the first week of December and Boxing Day, they cram in all these one-dayers back when you'd play eight group games each to eliminate one side, which of itself sounds crazy now. Anyway, so Australia get the job done there and bowl out the Windies for 87 and give themselves some belief, right? You know, they've won the test. Well, they've gone better in the test. They've won the first one day against the all-powerful West Indies, even if the Windies didn't actually make the final the, the previous year. It was Australia and India that made the, the final two. But still, the Windies were the, the gold standard nevertheless. There's the last ball tie at Hobart. Again, after school, I remember, you know, the, the first game there, that, that rain-reduced one, I remember I was up in bed and my parents let me watch it in the bunk beds with Ben, my brother. The second game, the tie at Hobart, um, that, that of course was around 5.30 in the afternoon, so I got to watch it on telly. And after that Bruce Reed loss a couple of years ago that we've done on this before when Australia lose to New Zealand, yeah. being two runs from the final Chris over. Chris Pringle. became a bit of a hoodoo ground for them. Uh, then Melbourne on the 15th of December, the second year in a row where my dad took me out of school to go down to the G and Australia make their 198 for eight, which again, I mean, it sounds a ridiculous score to make in 50 overs, but this is the full Melbourne boundary, smaller bats. 200 was always seen as the pass score in a one day at Melbourne, four and over. So Mark War top scores, but the Windies are pissing it. They're 158 for two, and that's when predictably my dad says, let's go. So we're uh, making our way down the, you know, in the Southern Stand, which was the brand new great Southern Stand at that point. You can go down the steps or the ramps. I remember us walking down the ramps of the Southern Stand as that third wicket fell, ended up this extraordinary mm. collapse of eight for 36, almost a, well, pretty much it foreshadows what happens four years later in the 96 semi final with the Windies so far ahead in the game. From 158 for two, they're knocked over 36 runs later. Mark Waugh taking five for 24, right. his best ever figures in, in one day cricket. And I saw none of it, despite him being my childhood hero or one of them. And Australia win that by four runs, a total classic of the era. So we were on the mm. Southeast Arterial, as that freeway was then known. Of course you um, were. As listening to it on yeah, the ABC. But you, you got to. You got to offer your respects to General Sir John Monash. You know, you, you got to, even if it hadn't been named after yes. him at that point. You, you, you got to, you got to feel the vibe of you know, the man who revolutionised um, synchronising the different arms of the forces towards the end of World War One. Hey, we've got tanks, we've got planes, we've got foot troops. What if we used them together? What if, um, what in if a, we go in a, in a way where they supported one another? And what if we go around? Why don't we go to the flanks? Uh, so uh, two days later in Sydney, um, another one that all always comes up around this summer. So the Windies make 214 for five, whatever, no big deal. Desmond Haynes, 94. But Pakistan, all out for 81, chasing 214 in 48 overs. You know, they lose by 133 oh. runs 
I mean, oh, I mean, I, I don't that's want to, filthy. I, mean, I don't want to say it's of that era, but it's obviously of that era. Phil Simmons, mm. and this was the summer of Phil Simmons in so many ways. Ten oh, overs. Yeah. This are, these are the figures. Yeah, ten overs, eight maidens, four for three. So four wickets for three in ten completed overs. Still the most economical figures in one day cricket, and so they'll be forever. We can be fairly certain. And, you know, that Phil Simmons celebration where he would pump his hands in the air like that, I mean, I still do that, you know, and I'm 39, right? Like not not so relevant when you're bowling off spin, but, you know, when, when you used to charge, you know, the dream about bowling, um, running in and charging in last night probably fits into our Discord channel around cricketing dreams, sad as that is. So, and what happens next is they take the break, right? They play the test match at Melbourne. They play the test match at Sydney. I did wonder, what do the Pakistanis do for four weeks? You know, they're all whatever it worked out to be. Because there's this mm. nice gap. Did they spend their Christmas in Australia or did they go home for three weeks and return? And I don't know what the convention was there. But, you know, anyway, the Pakistanis are doing abysmally and they're losing everything, especially in the second half of the group games that – they pick back up after that Sydney test where Lara makes 277. And, you know, and, and it's pretty formulaic after that point. Australia and the Windies keep winning, although the Windies do a little bit better against Australia and, and they finish second. Australia finished first. And then we're into the finals. And, Jeff, I'm not sure if you remember it in quite the same way, but to my way of thinking about it, it was kind of like the grand final of cricket then. And that sounds crazy, right? They've played all these one-day internationals against each other. Then they have a best-of-three final series, which was built up like, yeah, as I said, like the cricketing grand final with always one game in Melbourne, one game in Sydney, and the third final would rotate from year to year. And that first final does meet expectations. It's the Kirtley Ambrose-Dino final where he tells him to take his wristbands off and Looking back through the scorecard, it, I don't know, it doesn't quite match the myth. You know, I think the myth is that Australia were a good chance to win that. In reality, Australia were a long way off and they were bowled out for 214, but Ambrose taking five for 32 in that ferocious mm. spell after Dino was you know, Ill, Ill, dumb enough, I suppose he would say himself. I think he wasn't a smart thing to roll up a bowler like Ambrose. Uh, and then in Melbourne, it was a forgettable Last final, second and last final, the Windies win by four wickets after bowling out Australia for 147. So so that was that. But, and this is mm. what the point I was making as I started talking before, that second final is on the 18th of January. So the Windies actually had yep. all the momentum heading into Adelaide, the Australia Day test in Perth. Like yeah. from before, before Christmas, it was all about Australia and including probably the, the Boxing Day test match. But as we moved into 1993, um, a year that, you know, I've made an entire documentary about in, in the footy context. And we nearly made one about 92, 93 on the greater season as well for reasons that are probably coming through here that um, it's such a memorable, distinctive summer. But, um, yeah, by the time we reach Adelaide, the Windies have, have got back on top because one-day cricket and test cricket, you know, the teams are practically the same. And as you mm. explained before, they went on yep. to complete the summer. They win the one-day series 2-0 or the finals 2-0 and, the, and they win the test 2-1. But, yeah, what a great time to be a kid. There's, yeah, there's enough crossover in that era, you know, with with the teams being broadly the same, and then then you mix it up. And we've talked about 2005 and England getting that momentum up through their one dayers against Australia to launch into the Test series and tackle on that kind of thing. There there were those possibilities then. I don't know why it's different now, but it just feels disjointed. I suppose normally they tend to tack the white ball stuff on at the end of test series rather than do it beforehand. And I don't know if it would work to do it beforehand. There are there, are, there have been times when those sort of series have been played before the test start, but often it's a different team rather than the one that's going to play the tests that comes in and 
and plays those sort of ignored series that have happened in the middle of November or that sort of time when nobody cares, nobody watches, nobody goes. Um, so they're, 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 it doesn't seem to be an exactly correct answer. But that is the 92-93 summer for John O'Halen. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one. With your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. I think we need to crack on to our next number, which comes in from Will Sandford. The number is $6.48. It's in Australian dollars, and it does not, as far as I know, come with a clue, which means it is open for you, Adam. All right, Will, uh, strap in. This is a big one. So I started preparing an answer for you that was going to be a bit of a round-the-houses one, right? I was going to talk a little bit about James Treadwell, about a couple of instances where 648 was made, a little bit of Dimuth Kurunaratna because he's a final word favourite. Thought that'd be a nice answer, right? The 648th Test match, bloody good Test match. That was in Auckland in 1969 where the Windies chased down 345 in the fourth innings at in just 69 overs. It's one of the best fourth innings chases ever um, with Seymour Nurse, Seymour Butts, making 169 uh, in, in 215 minutes. I had all this stuff prepared. I thought, you know, that's about enough. And we'll leave it there and we'll come back to it and so on. But one last thing I'll just check out is uh, who's taken six for 48 in an innings. And this ended up being the Rabbit Warren where I spent quite a lot of time uh, this morning. So (laughs) six for 48 has been taken twice by Australians, maybe three times. But let's just focus on on the one that happened first. For it was in uh, the third test match ever played. This was in uh, 1879 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Lord Harris's English team 
in Australia up against Dave Gregory's Australians. His third and final test match in charge, of course, Dave Gregory in charge at the very start of test cricket or as it was later designated. Now, let's just deal with the test match to begin and then get on to the fun stuff, right? So this test at Melbourne, it was the only test of the summer and the reason for that will become apparent in a little bit. England all out 113 and 160. The Demon Spoffer takes his six for 48 in the first innings, our number. In the second innings, takes seven for 62. What a stunning all-round performance. That six for 48 includes the first ever test hat-trick, Royal McKinnon Emmett. You beauty. They were 26 for seven. Yeah, it's a fairly significant day in test history. First hat-trick for Australia. Spoffer doing that to England in the third test match. You know, that would have been sufficient. Again, I would have been happy to have left it there and and, and, you know, perhaps talked more about the hat-trick or talked more about Spoffer and, and so on. But then I, I realised I couldn't leave it at that. So in the middle of that test match, as England made 113 and 160, Australia made 256. Alec Bannerman, mm. uh, brother of, made 73. Charles made 15 and 15 not out chasing. They needed about 30-odd to win, I think. And batting with uh, – no, not 30. It was 19 to win, sorry. And batting with Charles Bannerman at the end was the great Billy Murdoch. Four not out when Australia win the Test match. Billy Murdoch, goodness gracious me, what a man, what a player, what a story. This particular story about Billy Murdoch, I I, 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 I mean, mm. I understand this thing happened, but I knew nothing about the thing I'm about to discuss. Was it, did, he, did he just decide to start playing for England halfway <laughs> well, through the well, Test match? Well, uh, it, Turncoat, the great uh, it, turncoat. It did cross Billy my mind Murdoch. after learning more about this. I, I've, I've now since pondered how did he end up playing for England. Let's go up the, up the Hume as it was probably known then, maybe not even that. Let's go to Sydney. Let's go to Sydney. After the test match, Lord Harris's touring team was set to play a match at the Association Ground, later the SCG, against Dave Gregory, the Australian captain, his New South Wales side. So New South Wales against the Lord Harris 11, a timeless match in theory at least, beginning on the 7th of February, 1879, mm-hmm. about two or three weeks after the test match. Lord Harris's side in the first innings make 267. Monkey Hornby, who, Jeff, you've told the story of before, he makes uh, 67 opening and top scores for the tourists. Fred Spofforth, who's playing for New South Wales, of course, as ever, five for 93 because he takes five for in every innings he seems to bowl in, across 44 overs. He just did that for fun. In reply, New South Wales are bundled out for 177, but Billy Murdoch, the Australian superstar, carries his bat for 82. 82 not out, out of 177 opening the innings. Mm-hmm. The Wisdom Almanac referred to it as one of the grand innings of its time, and it was played in front of roughly 10,000 people on a weekend. Nevertheless, as was the, the, the requirement at the time, which I touched on earlier, they had to follow on because they were within 80 runs, and the follow-on, A, was I believe compulsory then, and B, it was fewer runs required. So 80 was enough and they were trailing by more than that. So follow on New South Wales did, and this is when it gets wild. So Murdoch's opening the batting with Alec Bannerman, his Australian teammate. Now let, let, let's just cross to the, the umpire here. The central umpire was a chap by the name, well, I say the central umpire, one of the two central umpires, not that there's a third umpire then, was a chap by the name of George Coulthard. I would Love to do the story of George Coulthard at some stage. He's 22 mm-hmm. during this match umpiring at Sydney. Now, he's not from Sydney. How'd that happen? He's very much from Carlton. Well, he's playing for Carlton by this point. He's a superstar. Okay. A superstar for Carlton. Wins three VFA flags for them. He's a leading goal kicker a couple of times. He's the best player for Victoria in the intercontinental games that are played before Federation. So this guy is a serious sportsman. Yeah. He umpired the test match at Melbourne. 
a couple of weeks earlier at age 22. He's a cricketer as well, I should add. What, how, what, what, were, they, were they just like, what, this guy leads up strongly on the wing and has a good <laughs> pair of hands. I bet he knows if it's pitching well, outside I think, I think it's because like, he played for Melbourne. <laughs> he was a Melbourne Cricket Club player and this game was played at the MCG. So I can only imagine okay. it's some link through. What, and they just raffle it? They just grab someone out of the ranks? Oh, yeah, he's pretty good at, you know, impact outside <laughs> so, the line. So he, he'd, uh, he'd in. officiated in this test match at 22. There's never been a younger test umpire, by the way. This remains the record, not surprisingly. He, he was a cricketer. He went on to play a test match in 1882 in England. So, you know, he was a cricketer as well, played one test match in 1882, played for Victoria, primarily was a football player, ran a sport and tobacco shop in Ligon Street, okay. survived a shark attack, when he was over, I think this was in. W, I think he was in WA what? by this point, if I've read this correctly. He crossed the country to participate in a bare knuckle boxing bout for huge money. What? And found himself in the water and survived the shark attack on this trip. So, don't he- go to Cronulla. He won't survive a shark <laughs> attack there. Sharks coming to get you. Uh, but have, hang on. So he umpired Test cricket before he played Test cricket. He umpired Test cricket before he played Test cricket, and and he must have just loved he, umpiring. And he punched a shark. And Did he punch the shark? Well, he, I don't know how else he survives it. He's- he must have punched the shark, Kelly Slater style. Like, don't yeah. jump the shark, punch the shark. Well, if you've gone over there to be a boxer and you're in the water and a shark bites you, you just keep boxing. It's That's a good how point. you get out of shark attacks. He's also the first football umpire. Apparently, football what? games were officiated by the players on the ground, kind of like the way you might in high school, right? <laughs> you know, you, you umpire your own game. He's the first person to wear white and umpire games of football in Melbourne. Again, all before Federation. So he's a this Carlton okay. superstar in the VFA, Victorian superstar. Did he referee his own machine. boxing matches. And, well, <laughs> he seemed to have the he seemed to have that zeal about him. He enjoyed having the whistle or having the the ball counter. Not right. That I, that I expect they had ball counters back then. Yeah, f- first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court <laughs> as well. He's just it's really good at decision making. Well, well, sadly, look, who knows what he might have gone on to do? Tragically, he contracted tuberculosis and died at the age of twenty seven. So he had this really serious life, George Coulthard, and, yeah, passed away very young, very, very young. Right, with all that in mind, let's go back to 1879. Let's go back to the association ground in Sydney. Let's talk about briefly a chap by the name of Alexander Webb. He's playing for the tourist. He's of Bethnal Green, which I was briefly. He's of Middlesex as well where he had a champion career, and he's playing for Lord Harris's team. He collected the ball and he ran out Billy Murdoch for 10 by the assessment of the square leg umpire, George Coulthard, and all hell breaks loose. Because of this, well, there's lots of reasons which I'll go through. (laughs) After the test match, Lord Harris became quite chummy with George and said, we've been asked to appoint an umpire for the game against New South Wales. How do you feel about coming up to Sydney for a week? We'll pay your way. You can come up with us. So having done the test match, presumably by um, appointment of of Melbourne Cricket Club, Mm. he now goes to Sydney as the England-appointed umpire for this game <laughs> in, in Sydney, in New South Wales, which is a different colony. You know, remember the Victoria, New South Wales, it's not one Australia at that point, far from it. Sure. So he heads up and does this game and he gives out Murdoch, who'd carried his bat in the first innings, and all hopes really for New South Wales, him, John Murdoch, doing something extraordinary, as he was prone to doing, as we've talked about before. Mm. I mean, this is one of the true greats of the, of the pre-Federation era. Now... The English had had a decision go their way earlier in the match. On day one, when England, well, when um, when Harris's 11 were making their 267, Harris himself had been given not out by Coulthard when he fucking smashed it. And 
there was a perception that he'd been, that, that there was something not quite right going on. Remembering that this is a, a bad time for cricket and betting. You know, we touched on before the 1990s. Sure. Not a great time for cricket and betting, fair to say. A hundred mm. years earlier, as Jerry Kimber's- There was a lot of enthusiasm. It depends how you define good or bad time. <laughs> if you were enthusiastic about the concept of sports betting, that was a great time for you. Well, well, quite. And and there was a sense that there was something going on around this game. So players, in theory, weren't allowed to back themselves, but the English backed themselves heavily. And the New South Wales fans, acknowledging that you know Gregory was playing, Spoffoff was playing, Bannerman was playing, et cetera, Murdoch, of course- they, all the punters, which were known as larrikins back then, like the, the origin story of the term larrikin, which I'm sure you know. You know, I wrote an essay about it at university, and you know, to be a larrikin was to be, yeah, shorthand descendant of convicts, right? You, you know, you're a rough, right? You're rough as guts, and the convicts who, um, sorry, rather the larrikins who were also known for their gambling, they had their own enclosure at the SCG where you could punt, and they backed New South Wales off the map, and New South Wales lose Murdoch to an umpire who was from Victoria, this is really important, who was from Victoria and they fucking hated Victorians. Later on, when this all moved on, there's a line I I read somewhere that there was more suspicion for Coulthard because he was Victorian, not that he was with the English. That was the primary sense of outrage around the fact that he'd given out Murdoch in these, you know, Hmm. arguably controversial circumstances. So the Larrikins- Maybe this, maybe, maybe this was the moment that inspired Henry Parks. Maybe this is when he said, Federation, that's what we need. We need a coming well, together. To We need to build bridges. We need to heal wounds. We need to get me on a commemorative $1 coin in 2001 with my big beard. Maybe that was You don't was even it. know the half of it yet either. You don't even know the half of where this all relates to this. Exactly what you're describing. <laughs> so, the, the, so there's the run out, right? And the Larrikins are kicking off. They're kicking off. They're dancing. They're roaring for Murdoch not to go. Initially, Murdoch doesn't go. He eventually starts making his way from the field and Gregory does not tell another batsman to depart the dressing room. There's a standoff. Harris walks to the boundary line, goes up to Gregory. Larrikins are going wild. And Gregory's demand is that Coulthard is removed, that he no longer umpire. He's clearly on the take. Word had gotten back about the betting that was going on in the dressing room before the game. That was that. This had to end. This could not continue. Or Australia, or rather New South Wales, I should say, would not continue in this game. At that exact same time, the Larrikins stormed the field. 10,000 people there. There are reports that 2,000 people have stormed the pitch. Harris goes back to his team after this altercation with Gregory. And Gregory is winding up the crowd, again, reportedly, winding up the crowd, getting more and more ferocious and angry about what's going on. He goes back to his teammates who are still roughly in the middle of the ground and the crowd are coming towards them. And Harris, they're coming after him specifically. Monkey Hornby detects that somebody has whipped Harris, whipped him, and remember Monkey Hornby, the boxer, gets him, Mm. performs a citizen's arrest and takes him as a prisoner in the dressing room. (laughs) One of the fans is taken prisoner by Monkey Hornby in the dressing room. (laughs) Other England players. Was it, is there there any suggestion that it was kind of a sexy whipping? You know, that it might have been, it might have been a whipping that Harris Well, the other part of it is that Monkey Hornby has his shirt ripped off his body by these larrikins as he's leaving the ground. So whipping shirt off your notes. But it's on for young and old. The, in, yep. the MCC, not even MCC. This, this is like this is like ten cent. Oh beer, yeah, though. you know this oh, is like yeah. Cleveland versus this, Texas. This Rangers. is all of that and some. 
the the the, but the, Harry, the Harris the England beers. players, the Harris eleven players, who by the way are mostly amateur posh boys, right? You know, like they're not they're not prone right. to be you know like getting in a scrap necessarily. Yeah. They they play cricket a certain way and and things run a certain way. They're grabbing stumps to give right. Harris. They play cricket by paying off the umpire well, and then expecting I, I, to win. I, I don't know. Yeah. The more I read yeah. about this, I think the less likely that he was paid off. Okay. Anyway, they protect Harris. Maybe he, he was just a dumb kid who shouldn't have been umpiring a high-level cricket. There might have been some pressure, right? There might have been some underlying tension, but, you know, anyway. They have to get stumps out of the ground to protect Harris to get off the field. Thankfully, they all get off the ground and there's cuts and bruises and scrapes, but nothing too significant for the England players. They're back in the dressing room and they basically take stock. All these fucking lunatics are still on the pitch, ranting and chanting, including... Banjo Patterson. Banjo Patterson is one of the 2,000. <laughs> As a young lad, Banjo had gone up for the game. So he he spoke and wrote about this later in life too, right? This is all before, you know, becomes famous. He's, he's just insulting the English players in verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This must be what? Is this about six years before the Grand Annual when they play, when he hears the music to Waltzing Matilda before he puts the music? I think 1885, Right. We did this in Warrnambool, didn't we? I feel like we've done this bit before. Anyway, I know it's 1880s, so it's before It's before all of that. Anyway, well before all of that. So they've got this prisoner in the dressing room. <laughs> They're back in the dressing room. Monkey Hornby isn't wearing a shirt. Harris, Lord Harris has been escorted from the field. Um, mm-hmm. And then half an hour later, they finally clear the playing area. And this discussion happens again between the two captains. Coulthard goes, says Gregory, or the game is called off. And this is when another character gets involved. <laughs> You know how I said the English were allowed to appoint an umpire? So Uh is New South Wales. Apparently this was the custom. They got to appoint an umpire to go in and he came in to be the mediator. He went in and requested a private audience with Dave Gregory. Who was the New South Wales umpire? Edmund Barton, who went on some (laughs) strange... 23, for our English listeners and other listeners, I'm on. Sir Edmund Barton went on to become Australia in 1901, so 22 years on from this, was Australia's first Prime Minister. Australia's <laughs> first Prime Minister was umpiring this game and he was sent down the other end and he thought from where he was standing at the central end, because obviously the run-out's given at square leg, he thought it was fine. He thought fair play. He backed in his colleague and said there's nothing actually untoward here. These guys need to... Calm the fuck down. This is largely the fault of these larrikins who are about to do their dosh. But he gets Gregory to agree to continue the game with the same official. So he is effectively the peacemaker. Presumably that's how he was able to negotiate his way into the prime ministership later on, which the first election in Australia is a very odd one. He wasn't actually of a a conventional political party, was he? So they, they, well, he was, but. Well, I mean, it's it's a little known fact that after that game, Edmund Barton went down and hopped in the sea and punched a shark as well. Just, <laughs> well, just part of that generation of Australian all-rounders. They could do anything. Yeah, Australian all-rounders, Australian umpires for that matter. So, yeah, so they, they do. They have a rest day on Sunday, fair enough. People cool down a little bit, shall we say. They return on Monday and the whole thing falls apart for New South Wales. They're bowled out for 49. They lose by an innings in 41. After Murdoch and Bannerman, no one makes it double figures. So was Coulthard on the take? No one ever substantiated this. There was a huge response in England in the press. Um, Mm. Lord Harris wrote a letter or wrote a letter with the intention of it being leaked to all the papers and they took all the coverage there. Now, how's this? How's this? The Australian papers went nuts as well. The Sydney Morning Herald called it a national humiliation. 
It didn't help, by the way, that the English players were calling them convicts as they were making, they were probably playing their role as things got progressively more heated through the afternoon. I'm not saying it was all one way. I can't believe that English players or supporters would say something like that, certainly not in this day and age. But how's this? So the front page of the paper, the Australasian and the SMH, the bigger publications of the time, on their front page on the Monday morning, right? It outstrips what I think we can agree is a bigger yarn that day. (laughs) On the same day this was happening, the Kelly gang raided Geraldery. This is the same day as the Kelly gang. That's in the paper, but not on the front because of what's going on at the What's the bigger yarn? I don't know. So the Kelly gang are out in force that same day. So Lord Harris's letter, you know, blames, actually blames New South Wales. He said, if you had a problem with the Victorian umpire, you should have said so. And um, he, he, he blames kind of everybody else, as you'd expect. He said that no one would have cared had it been Bannerman run out. The only kegs it was Murdoch. That's what right. set them off. That kind of stands to reason. He got into Australia more broadly, if you, you know, ad hom character assassinations on the Australian people. The Wisden Almanac went on to publish the entire letter the next year. The other part to this is that New South Wales was set to host another test match you know, the second test of the series, right? But then the English said, we're not staying. We're going back to Victoria. We're coming back with Coulthard. So they went back there and played more tour games against the Victorians and so on. They said the only test of 1879 was the one they played in Melbourne before rocking up there. Harris gives another speech before he leaves. He's still fuming and it's really bad blood as they leave. Now, a year and a bit on from this, Billy Murdoch is now the Australian captain. He takes a side to England for the 1880 series, but no one really wants to play them. The the bad blood is such that counties are saying no. The MCC rejected a game at Lords. They said, we're not playing these guys, even if there wasn't as many, there was a bit of turnover in the personnel. But then Surrey, through the intervention of WG Grace, Surrey and Lord Harris, who was quite positively disposed to Murdoch, he never blamed Murdoch for what happened, came together and said, why don't we host a game instead of Lords at the Oval. And so they did. And they played a game that Spofforth didn't play in, in front of 45,000 people. Three Grace brothers were involved. It became what retrospectively was known as WG Grace's Test Taboo. And it was the fourth Test match played. So the third was in Melbourne. The fourth was at the Oval. And they found a way through that tour to put the bad blood and the Sydney riot behind them. And that, of course, was that where we started on this, uh, Billy Murdoch and Lord Harris and Edmund oh. Barton and a bloke called Jules Coulthard, um, all happening on a on a weird <laughs> Saturday afternoon in Sydney in the February of uh, 1879, Jeff. And that story and wow. that number uh, was for Will Sanford, 648 AUD. Hope you enjoyed it. Round of applause. That is that is outstanding. And I can't believe I didn't know that I know. story yet or the, the, the full detail of it particularly. Um, God, who... Who would have thought? Who would have thought the English cricketing establishment would hold a grudge after a somewhat fractious encounter with with a bunch of presumably absolutely wasted <laughs> lunatics as well who were just who were just there on like bad homemade whiskey and they were putting bets yeah. on and um, yeah there there would be there would be people still among us if they could jump the fence and and go up there and. <laughs> And threaten the players. Get take, getting taken prisoner, getting taken it. prisoner by Monkey Hornby. Then Ed, Edmund Barton sent out to, set, <laughs> to sort the whole thing out with a bloke that punched a shark. Who uh, played the, a test two years later? I, I'm tipping. I didn't. I didn't look at this actually. But if if Coulthard played one test in 1882, there's a decent chance it would have been the Oval Test of 1882, which is where the Ashes starts. Hadn't even thought about mm. looking at that. Someone send in something. Bob Crisp, 
George Coulthard. There's two stories I want to tell. Frank Mitchell as well. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Well, I've got one that's uh, that's not so long, um, that's a little bit more straightforward. It is from Srikanth Agram and it is, uh, well, the actual uh, pledge that he sent through was $2, but he sent through, he said, consider it to be $1 USD, consider the number to be 100, um, although it is a nerd pledge, no clues, except to say it's not related to Sachin and is in very final word areas. So the problem is, you know, when you say to someone, don't think of an elephant, that old sort of adage, obviously they think of an elephant. If you say it's not related to Sachin, of course, I start thinking about things related to Sachin, which presumably means the hundred hundreds, um, the hundred international hundreds are what you might think of first, if you were thinking about hundreds. But one hundred hundreds is a very final word area. So it could be about running out the non-striker. It could be about Frank fucking Ward. It could be a a range of other things that are final word areas. But hundred hundreds is a thing that we're interested in, particularly, you know, the first class hundred hundreds and so on. I did wonder um, if anybody made exactly a hundred first class hundreds, but not quite, almost. It's interesting how many players get just past the mark. So Dennis Amos, Les Ames, um, Ernest Tildesley make 102 of them. Edric and, uh, and Glenn Turner make 103. Tom Hayward makes 104. So I, I suppose it's a, th- there would be a you know, players would finish the season where they'd made a hundred hundreds and think, you know, and Alexander the Great wept for them when no more worlds left to conquer. But I'm interested in the challenge, right? And it's not directly Sachin related, but you and I have been keeping an eye on the Virat Kohli situation as many others have. And I'm interested in that at the moment, given that he's making one day tons regularly and should have had another one if he hadn't fucked around if you just take the single if you take the single you go to 96 Jadeja's on strike for two balls he can take a single put you back on strike or he can see out the over whatever and then just take the one and eventually you can try to squeeze a four from the last ball once they brought the field up don't try to hit it over deep mid wicket when everyone's back on 95 that's not smart not the way to go about what's it what's that um what's that meme at the moment the more you fuck around the more you find out or well, <laughs> found yeah. out don't fuck around yeah, cricket gods it. are going to get you yeah, well, I think he's still doing fine because he still has 48 one-day <laughs> centuries. 48! It is an insane number. But he was vying for the 49 the other night, which is what Tendulkar made. So Sachin's 100 hundreds, he makes 49 one-day hundreds, 51 test hundreds. Virat Kohli has 78 international hundreds at the moment for India, which which means logically you can figure out that he's well behind on test hundreds. So he's got the 48 one-day hundreds, he's got 29 test hundreds and the one that he made in T20s last year. But in the one-day stuff, I mean, I, I find the careers interesting, the comparison's interesting because he's nearly at 13,500 one-day runs, um, Virat. So he's about 5,000 runs behind Tendulkar, who was 18,400 and something. You wouldn't say only 5,000 runs for most players, but I say only 5,000 for Coley because the number of matches that he's played is so much less proportionally. So he's played 286 one day as of recording here. Tendulkar played 463. So Coley's played 60% of Tendulkar's matches and made 73% of Tendulkar's runs is the best way to describe that. And and there's another thing here, Jeff, is that, I mean, I don't know whether you've crunched the numbers on this, but looking at the FTP, without wanting to get too serious here, looking at the FTP and and where one-day cricket sits at the moment in schedulers' minds, and we just had the end of the World Mm. Cup Super League, but what that means for it, it may well be that Coley only plays 330-ish 
you know, one mm. day is. I, I don't reckon they'll play. Well, let's assume he gets one more World Cup, sorry. So he might play 20-something in the next four years and then 10 or so there and then he'll be, what, 38 and that might be a natural end points. But he won't reach 350. Yep. He'll end up having a far smaller number of games. I mean, he'll, he'll end up overtaking yep. Sachin on hundreds, maybe even next week. You know, he's playing England on Sunday before this podcast is released. He might have pulled even with Tendulkar. I'm not sure. But, yeah, just of interest to me is that um, – because Tendulkar, what, 49, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, but that, it might well be that he has a comfortably better end point than Tendulkar because he won't play those extra 100 games. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. But but he makes a bigger – bulk of runs. So he averages 58 versus Tendulkar's 44. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it not like there's a little bit of not out stuff in there because Collie's so good in run chases. He's, he's often not out on big scores at the end of run chases. But, you know, he's, he's made more runs per game, basically, per innings than Tendulkar has by quite a long way. Different circumstances. Tendulkar was playing in a weaker team generally in the earlier part of his career and all the rest of it. But just in terms of the, the pure volume, that's how it works. So the difference in test hundreds is interesting being 29 test hundreds for Coley, 51 for Tendulkar, massive difference. But, like... Bear in mind that players who end up somewhere with 30-something test hundreds are the best of the best of the best all time. Mm. You know, they're the Jai Wardner, Sankakara type, you know, Eunice Khan type players with, with massive, massive records. Bradman on 29 was the the early, you know, absolute freak leader and then players playing a lot more test cricket meant that um, the, the modern greats all went past him. But... If you look at the volume of matches that Tendulkar played, 200 test matches in his career, Coley's played 111. So barely half the matches and he's made more than half the hundreds as well. So you know, if if he somehow were able to play the kind of numbers that Tendulkar played and keep producing at the same rate, then he'd be he'd be there and thereabouts anyway. So that's not going to happen. He's not going to play another 90 test matches. But he's 34. He's going to be 35 next week, just about actually. November the 5th. How about this, Adam? India plays South Africa on the 5th of November and it's going to be Coley's birthday. Imagine the spaff. Imagine the social media absolute fucking debacle that we're going to have with every outlet in the world just sucking up like a as hard as they possibly can mid-match and like whatever happens if, if he if he nicks off for five then people will be like being restrained from going onto the balconies but if he makes a hundred that day I mean oh, what, I, I, I go the other way the probability of him gaming it so it's his 50th hundred right he'll know that so how many is this 49th no I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he makes one against England so <laughs> I've priced that in is their next game after England South Africa nothing in between I think they might actually it have a game be. in between you know I've got a feeling they've got one other in there so it may yeah, well be the case that he, that he gets one more hundred before he pulls even with Tendulkar on 49 then on his birthday yep. on his birthday you know World Cup at home can hit in a game that will could well be first versus they play second. Sri Lanka they yeah, play Sri Lanka right. beforehand that's right so, so, so long got- as he picks up one against England or Sri Lanka then he can set it up yep. to overtake Tendulkar, his 50th one-day hundred, the first to ever breach that milestone on his birthday in a home World Cup. As you say, it's the stuff that, you know, social media admins dream of, but also advertisers, how many people will be watching that. It'll, it'll, oh, it'll be fucking huge. They'll, 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 but they'll, they'll give him an erotic massage on the ground, you know, <laughs> mid-pitch. Like, it's going to be, it's just going to be disgusting. He'll, like, he'll, yeah, um, yeah it, it's going to be 
it's going to be saccharine. I wonder if they'll get the planes to fly over and dump the rose petals out like they were trying to do for Tendulkar's last <laughs> test match. <laughs> Always one of the best stories in cricket. Anyway, right. So imagine that. Imagine that happens on November 5th. He'll be 35. Does he, does he get four more years? I don't know. I'd sort of feel like he might go and have other things to do before then does he go all the way around to another world cup if it happens not sure but probably another two or three he's incredibly fit at the moment even if it's three years like what can you do so if you look at the sort of the 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 rates at which those two made hundreds so Tendulkar made six one day tons in 1996 and he made nine of them in 1998 which is insane that's when he set the record for most one day runs in a year but the first five years of his career didn't make a one day ton we talked about that the the 1994 game in New Zealand when he goes up to open and has that breakthrough half century and then starts going on to make hundreds at the top of the order but after that he mostly makes between one and three one day centuries a year Tendulkar he makes four once and Test hundreds, he has the one huge year in 2010 when he makes seven hundreds. He makes five of them in 1999. He makes four of them in three other years. Has a few years with zero as well. So it, it's not like he makes huge gluts of test runs or test hundreds. It's just that he plays for 24 calendar years. So eventually he collects 51, even though most of those years it's one, two, three hundreds in, across those 24 years. So he gets the seven in a year in 2010, which is partly what makes him think you know, I'm in good nick, I'll keep going and I'll, I'll get the 100 hundreds. He makes one in his very first match of 2011, which is starts on January 2nd, makes the 146 at Cape Town in that classic series, even though the match is a draw, it's part of a great series where he has that battle with Dale Stain through the series. And then he doesn't make another 100 for three years. So 24 test matches, his final 24 tests, he can't make 100 while he's trying to chase that 100 hundreds mark and finally gets there via a one-day century against Bangladesh. I wonder what so, I wonder what it would have taken. You know, with hindsight, it's all good, right? Gets to 100 international hundreds and, you know, whatever. Fine, great, brilliant. What a thing. But had he got stuck on 99, like what would have it taken for him to have retired? Like would they mm. – like, let's hype – Hypothetically, or be dropped. Yeah, effectively be dropped, right? I mean, at what stage would he still be would he be playing at 45, 46? I know I understand, you know, from correspondence with Indian listeners to the show and others who talk to me on social media, respectfully, not those who just don't know, call us racist or whatever the usual stuff you cop on Twitter for being critical of the BCCI. I don't know why people are so loyal to the administration. Anyway, the uh or a government for that matter, regardless. So the the, the sense that milestones mean more in India, I now understand that, right? Milestones are of greater importance to in, in Indian fandom than they are in Australian fandom or English fandom is, is the sense that I get, right? But yeah. even with that accepted and acknowledged and, and accounted for, when would have been mm. the point where they would have drawn the line? I, I think it's a yeah. fascinating hypothetical to ponder because there might have reached a stage when, it, you know, say he gets to well, – he's 42 when he pulls the pin. Is that right? 41, 42? 41 maybe. What, what do they keep picking him at 43, 44? Because it's Tendulkar and you can't – you know what I mean? What do you reckon? He'd still be playing now. <laughs> Especially if um, – did he make any hundreds in those games that have been deemed internationals that you and I think – shouldn't like Asia versus, you know, remember there were oh, games, there were those yeah, Africa versus Asia games and so on. Mm. If he's got any hundreds that aren't for, you know, what I'd say games that should have that status and they recalibrate yeah. it one day and suddenly he goes back to 99 international hundreds, strap on those fucking buckles, Sachin, you're going to be required. Mm. You're going to be selected. I- <laughs> 
all that talk about which pads he likes to use mm. um, will be relevant once again. I, from memory, I don't remember one, but I have a feeling there might be one in there. But I, you know, the the Asia Eleven I know got, I remember got smashed up in the in that World Eleven game, the tsunami game. But I don't know about the Asia Africa games. There might be something in there. Mm, one one to look into. Anyway, the the point here being that um, Collier's had 13 calendar years as opposed to 24. So he's made, this is this is with uh, one day hundreds, he's made five in a year a couple of times, four a couple of times, and, and, and of course made his, no, sorry, that's his, that's his test tons, and had his mm-hmm. naught for three years running from 2020, 21, 22. So, you know, yeah, of course, if he, if he played that sort of number of tests, he, he could rival it, but he won't. One day is he's made six in a year twice, five in a year twice, four in a year four times. So he's, he's made hundreds at a more bulk rate than Tendulkar was able to do it. And, and four, that, that includes four this year, so that could go up to who knows what um, by the end of this World Cup anyway. So he had the drought, finished it with that with his first T20 century um, in 2022 in the, the Asia Cup. And um, and he's four and two this year, four one-day hundreds, two test hundreds, so that's six. So he's 22 short. Could he play three and a half more years, similar returns, six a year? That would just about get him there. You know, I th- I think it's not impossible at this point. I think during the drought a couple of years ago, it, it looked pretty impossible. But mm. now, maybe by the end of the World Cup, he has a couple more and um, and then he might be on. Just scanning through Tendulkar's hundreds while you were finishing up there, Jeff. So it looks like all of them were made for India, so fair enough. But um, I, I would just note that scanning through here, 14 of his one-day hundreds were in losing teams, so nearly one in three which I'm surprised by. I doubt there's anyone with a higher percentage of centuries to losing mm. team. I just don't think that I, – well, yeah, I know, I know we opened. bowling so. was often shit ass at the time. Yeah, um, yeah. So there was that as well. Yeah, or, and, and often there wasn't a lot of support with the batting too, so he'd be out there doing his thing and, and the rest would fall apart. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't want to annoy the, the, the Saturn stands. We love him, as you know, as anyone knows who's been, who's been listening to this show for a long time. Uh, Jeff, um, that's it for our new numbers today. We've managed to still be here for 70 minutes. We've both got things we've got to get to. Um, <laughs> we, we thought this might have been a short show, but we know what the, the, the reality There's is. No whenever whenever we think it'll be a short show, one of us does a 30-minute answer or however long it was that I was talking about 1879, but, you know, no regrets. If you really enjoy what we do here, even if you um, are relatively new and not across this, um, patreon.com forward slash the final word where we make all of our programs and have our online community through discord it is the place where you can support financially what jeff and i do and uh, give us the scope i suppose to to make this our full-time gig and thus make history shows and weekly shows and interview shows and uh, and, and daily shows as required as it is at the moment during the World Cup. So patron.com forward slash the final word. Get your nerd pledge in and have your story told. And you can jump on to become part of our lovely online community at Discord, which means that you get the first updates anytime someone has a baby. Um, <laughs> you get to you get to find out exactly exactly what has happened with babies. And and oh, the, the, here's a little note for you, Adam. I got to got to meet briefly young Logan Maverick Maxwell today ah. on the way up to the to the mountain. Um, we stopped off for a quick hello because uh, Vinny's over here yeah. with Logan um, to hang out with Glenn. So that's very sweet. Oh. They're, they're doing nappy changes and hanging out together and having a nice time. I saw Vinny post today um, a photo of the three boarding passes together. I remember doing something similar when Vinny was little. It just feels super cute seeing your baby's name like in real form with your surname next to it as a – anyway – 
boring baby stuff. But yes, that is that is lovely. And one other thing I did this morning on Discord, I joined the Talkies for the first time. I jumped on with Peggy yep. this morning. So both Peggy and I made our debut on Talkies and that's simply where there's a chat function, an audio function where our final word community get together on Discord a couple of times a week to uh, talk amongst themselves. And that was a very nice thing to do. So it's a um, it's a lovely place. It really is. So get on there and, and become part of it and uh, and nod as well to our nerd pledge, nerdageddon thing that's going on right now, the combat listening, because uh, they're having a, a really good time uh, trying to listen to every episode in its entirety before the next one drops, which is easier said than done when we're publishing sort of 10 or 11 <laughs> times a week. So anyway, that's it. This has been Storytime 156. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for your work. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back uh, next week. What am I saying? We'll be back like twice tomorrow. Uh, the shows keep on rolling. Can't stop, won't stop. See you later. Have a nice weekend. Bye. So you know what I meant. I had to go.